Good morning. Um, Today's reading will come from Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 5. So Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all today. I'm Pastor Rich, and I hope you're doing well. If you're new to our church, um, man, I want to welcome you to our church. I'm so glad you're worshiping with us today. And, you know, my prayer today is for you not to just, you know, go to church, uh, you know, because, I don't know, you feel like you haven't gone to church in a long time. My prayer is that you would encounter God, right? You would encounter the cosmic uh, God of the universe that also you would also find a spiritual family to walk the journey of life with, a family that um, you can not only share meals with and laugh, but also that you can grow in your faith with, uh, a spiritual family that you can pray with and partner with uh, as disciples of Jesus. With that being said, our church is currently going through the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 16. Um, As Justin read, um, you know, actually Acts 16 is where uh, uh, Paul and Timothy are introduced for the first time. That's the first time you ever hear of Timothy in the Bible. Uh, Timothy is a prominent figure in the New Testament. And um, when you read the New Testament, Timothy is portrayed as a very faithful disciple of Christ. He's actually Paul's protege, and he becomes his right-hand man. In the book of Romans, Paul calls Timothy his fellow worker. In the book of Philippians, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy, right? So, so these two uh, brothers in Christ were very, very close. They write several New Testament letters together. Uh, Paul is credited, of course, as the main author, but uh, he includes Timothy, gives him uh, associate producer credits. Very kind of Paul. But the two things we're going to look at in our passes today is, is one, we're going to look at gospel discipleship. That's the first thing we're going to look at, gospel discipleship. And then the second thing we're going to look at is gospel freedom. All right? So those are our two points. And for the first point um, with gospel discipleship, I'm just going to focus on one word. One word. And that word is in the first verse of our passage. It's the word disciple. Right? That's how Luke introduces Timothy. Right? There is a disciple named Timothy. Um, back in Acts 11, Luke tells us that the disciples in Antioch were the first ones to be called Christian. But every other time Luke references a Christian, he, he actually doesn't call them a Christian. If you do a word search in the Bible about uh, the word Christian or Christians, actually those two words only show up three times. Only three times. Every other time a Christian is referenced, he is referenced or she is referenced as a disciple or disciples, and those two words are referenced 255 times. And so what we see here in the New Testament is that 
the word disciple is, is synonymous with being called a Christian. The word disciple actually defines and clarifies what it means to be called a Christian. And so, in, you know, I think that uh, for, for those of us today, we sort of see it as this sort of two-part system, right? Evangelism is about becoming a Christian. And then discipleship, that's about maturing as a Christian. But what we see here is that there is, isn't a sort of hierarchical system, right? There aren't Christians here and then disciples here. It's not a kind of leveling up that you do when you become a Christian, <laughs> Because when you look at Matthew chapter uh, 28 at the end, you look at the Great Commission, right? What does it say? It says, go therefore and make disciples, right? Jesus says, look, you're not becoming a disciple after you get baptized. From the very beginning, Jesus is saying, no, no, be my disciple. Discipleship, becoming a disciple, following Jesus, that's always the main agenda from the very beginning. So what I want to do here is I want to highlight this word, what it means to be a disciple. There are actually three identities I want to highlight, um, three identities that are very important in understanding if you are a disciple of Christ. And the first identity of being a disciple is a gospel identity. That's the first identity. What does that mean? Well, when you read the New Testament... Uh, Jesus and the community that he formed, right? They preached the gospel not only to those outside of the church, but they were preaching the gospel, that same gospel, to those inside the church, right? And so the gospel is not just for not yet disciples. The gospel is also for already disciples. Why is that? Why is that? You know, Paul doesn't preach two sermons, right? One to not yet disciples and then the other two disciples. He preaches one sermon to everyone. Well, the reality is, is that once we become a follower of Christ, you know, um, our challenges, they don't disappear, right? Our difficulties, they don't disappear. I think one of the great challenges of being a disciple is actually walking out our new life in Christ, right? Living out of Jesus' victory over sin, that's one of the biggest challenges of being a disciple. And so what this means is that the gospel is not only the solution to um, the common predicament of sin for not yet disciples, the gospel is also the solution to the common predicament of sin for already disciples. Both Christians and those who aren't Christian desperately need the forgiving and the restoring power of the gospel. Not just once, not when you become a Christian, but for a lifetime. And you know, I think this is why many disciples of Christ, we can become cynical and jaded after we become a Christian. Because, you know, initially when we hear the gospel and the forgiveness of our sins, right, we, we taste it and we become a disciple of Christ and you're sort of on fire. But then as the years go by, you somehow feel like you're past that. Maybe I think it is that we understand that now that we are disciples of Christ, we should be spiritually growing. That's true. But sometimes what that inevitably does, it, what it does is when we continue to struggle with sin or when we have a failure, it makes us doubt our faith. It makes us get discouraged. 
It makes us maybe live in denial or maybe become blind. And so what happens then? We're not robustly confessing our sins. We're not robustly receiving forgiveness from God. And I believe that the unintended outcome is that the power of the gospel then is no longer a part of our lives. Right? Christian just becomes about doing, serving, learning. But man, that encounter, that gospel encounter with God that, that we experience, that, that, that we say, man, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to give everything. I want to surrender everything. That, that reality is missing. But what we see in the New Testament and in the book of Acts as Luke records and how Jesus has always intended it to be is that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient not just for pre-Christian failures but for post-Christian failures. Disciples are made for the first time and for the 50th time through the same process of repentance and faith. Disciples are gospel people who introduce and reintroduce themselves and others to the person and power of Jesus over and over and over again. Church, if you are a Christian, then you are a disciple. And if you are a disciple, then you never stop learning about the gospel. You never stop relating with the gospel. You never stop communicating the gospel. You never stop experiencing the power of the gospel. In his book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, author Jonathan Dotson, this is what he says about what it means to have a gospel identity as a disciple of Christ. This is what he says. As a Christian, at every failure, I concluded that I needed to work harder, get better accountability, and perhaps find a better discipler. But what I needed is what all of us need, continual belief in the depth of God's forgiveness and the steadfast resilience of his genuine love and approval in Christ. So it is continual trust in Jesus' death for my sin, his life as my righteousness and justification, his resurrection as my transformative hope and power that saves me, matures me, and draws me deeper and deeper towards what God has created me and saved me to be like Jesus and his disciple. It's beautiful. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, Paul tells the disciples at Corinth essentially the same thing. He tells the Corinthian disciples this. He says, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense, and in which you stand, present tense. Hold fast to the word I preached to you. You see, this tells us that the Corinthian disciples stood in the gospel in the past and they stand in the gospel in the present. They have not outgrown the need of Jesus' sacrifice and forgiveness for their sins. And they have not outgrown the need for the power of the gospel to continually transform their hearts. The gospel was received and believed by them and it is still holding them up. Right? The gospel not only saves you, it sustains you. The gospel is not just good news for the past, it continues to be good news for the present and will remain that way for all eternity. And so, as I wrap this last identity, this gospel identity up, here's what this means. Right? If the gospel, Jesus' 
death for the forgiveness of sins is the underlying power and hope of disciples, then being a disciple of Jesus is not fundamentally something that you do. Are you tracking me? Right? If the gospel is about Jesus, right, and his sacrifice and his grace and his love for your sins, then being a disciple is not fundamentally something you do. Being a disciple is about what has been done for you. And it's about resting in that continually. It's about fellowshipping and trusting in this gospel reality as your discipleship identity. It's about trusting in that more than what you can do. That's what, that's what being a disciple is. And ironically, ironically, when you do go back to what has been done for you and stop focusing on what you have to do for Jesus, ironically, that gives you the joy, right, to willingly, not unwillingly, cheerfully, not by obligation, to serve God, right? To draw towards God. You see, being a disciple at the end of the day is not performance-based. It's not a human activity. It is a spiritual activity. It is the power of the Holy Spirit working in your heart and thrusting you forward into the mission of God. And that only happens if your heart is blown away again and again by Jesus' grace for you. That's it, right? Uh, think about this, right? Um, you know, I've been married to Jen for nine years. Now, what motivates us to love each other? What motivates us? Is it, hey, you, you, need, to be, you need to be a good disciple. <laughs> you need to be a good husband. You're not doing this. You know, are you doing this? Or you, no, that doesn't motivate us, right? What, the law does not produce the righteousness of God, right? That's what the book of Romans says, right? The law condemns. The law enslaves. What motivates us is when we remind each other that despite the fact that we are not perfect, despite the fact that we're broken, I love you. Right? Man, that, that just makes us want to run through a brick wall for each other. Right? Grace saves. At the end of the day, the foundation of our identity as a disciple of Christ is the gospel. That, that gospel identity. That, that's all that Paul writes. He's just constantly trying to remind people, don't forget about the gospel, right? Even the book of Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you, right? Were you saved by the Spirit and now are you being perfected by works, right? Uh, there is something in, innate about us uh, that that, no, that, that, that we, we pursue our own righteousness. It's just, it's his name. But constantly, over and over again, the New Testament authors, what they try to remind us is like, no righteousness of, of human, humanity, no one is going to be able to accomplish, right, approval from Christ. Now, the second identity that we have as disciples of Christ is, is a kingdom identity. What do I mean by that? Well, the most popular title that Jesus was identified with is what? Christ, right? Christ was not his last name. <laughs> is Jesus the Christ, okay? Christ is the Greek form of the word, uh, Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. Uh, this was another way of identifying the king because Israel kings were anointed with oil. So when Jesus says he is the Christ, he is declaring that he is the king. 
Now, what Jesus' contemporaries misunderstood about this was that Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, I'm a political king, I'm a national king, you know? Jesus was declaring that he was the king of the universe. It's very different, right? He was God himself. And so if Jesus is the king of the universe, here's what this correctly means. When we become Jesus' disciple, we don't just receive a gospel identity, right? We don't just get to participate in his grace for our sins. We are also brought under his divine authority. His authority that is good and loving for us. Right? There's nothing in the Bible, uh, no authoritative word in the Bible that's going to not be good for you if interpreted and understood correctly. And so what that means is that we as disciples of Christ are not kings or authorities over our own lives. Right? <clears throat> now if you... Uh, or raised in America, or born in America, you naturally hate authority. That's just how it works. <laughs> Don't tell me what to do, right? <clears throat> I quit. <laughs> but when it comes to creation, when it comes to your identity of who you are, you have to surrender self-rule if you want to live in the kingdom of God. That's how it works. There can't be two kings in God's kingdom. And so what happens is that when we become disciples of Christ, we're not just uh, receiving a gospel identity. We are being nationalized, in a sense, in God's kingdom identity, you see? When World War II ended, right, the Nazis were overthrown as rulers over European countries. But there wasn't just freedom from their previous oppressors. People weren't just like, you know, uh, chaotically doing whatever they wanted. They knew they had to establish a new governing authority. One that was better than the oppressors. One that would unite them towards a mission of restoration and renewal. And so in a very similar way, when we receive the freedom of God and he frees us from the power of sin and the power of Satan and the power of death, we're not just you know, chaotically doing whatever we want, we receive a king and his authority and mission in his kingdom. And so, you know, um, as disciples, we don't just uh, worship and, and, and get to uh, receive God's love. No, we, we, we obey and serve Jesus in every aspect of our lives. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to have a kingdom identity. Uh, there's ownership right? Um, if you are a citizen of whatever country, you have ownership over your country, right? You are called to do that which is good. In the same way, um, when, we when we become a disciple of Christ, uh, we take ownership of the kingdom, and we don't do this begrudgingly, but out of a joyful, right, um, loving identity that we already have in the gospel identity that we have. And uh, when, not if, but when we fail to live out our kingdom identity, because, you know, like I said, you know, it's not like we become sinless after we become a Christian. The, the good news is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't disown us. He doesn't give up on us. He's still our king who bears our sin and grants us forgiveness. Right? The gospel, again, is the redeeming and renewing center of our relationship with Jesus. 
even as we try to live out our kingdom identity, you see? Now, the last identity I want to talk about is our family identity, right? So as a disciple of Christ, you have a gospel identity, you have a kingdom identity, and then you have a family identity. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read the New Testament, especially if you read the Gospels, Jesus did not just view his disciples as his students and as his followers, right? Um, He viewed them as his family. In Matthew chapter 12, he says, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, right? And so Jesus wasn't just their savior. He just wasn't their king. He was also family with them. He shared his meals with them, you know. He shared his heart, his teachings, his suffering, his life, and his hope with his disciples. His disciples had become family. So one of the purposes of the church, friends, is not just to remind you of your gospel identity, right? On Sundays, through the sermon, through the songs, in our community groups. It's not just to remind you that of your kingdom identity and that we have all been saved for a purpose, right? God can zap us up to heaven. Why would he allow us to remain here on earth so that we can fulfill the Great Commission? And it's not only to remind you of that kingdom identity, but it is also to remind you of your family identity, that as disciples in a family with God as our father, we have also Jesus as our eldest brother. You know, I was a youth pastor for four years uh, at the first church um, at which I was ordained at... And um, there's, you know, there'd always be sibling, sibling conflict. And the older sibling would be very disappointed in the younger sibling because the younger sibling was spoiled. And the younger sibling would be disappointed in the older sibling because the older sibling was selfish. <laughs> I'm not telling you that's what it is. That's what I heard, okay? So I sit down with them and I had to constantly remind, one of the things that I thought was, you know, um, one of the best ways that I found for myself in ministering to siblings like that was to constantly remind the younger sibling, you know, you got to show your older sibling grace, right? It's not easy. Right? It's not easy. Right? And I would point them to their eldest sibling, Jesus. Right? Because me telling them to show grace did not give them the power to show grace. They needed the power of grace from Jesus who gave them grace. And so, as the spiritual family of Jesus here, um, we don't just operate, though, with grace. We also operate with truth. Right, right? That, that's how families should operate. Truth and grace. Now, I know, though, that some families, it's, it's, all, it's all truth. Right? It's all truth. Lots of law, lots of judgment, lots of condemnation. Not much grace, not much confession or forgiveness, not much prayer and dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Just lots of, this is what you got to do. And I think because of that, you and I, we have lots of scars uh, from our families. And when we come to the church, the message of love and grace, it heals us, doesn't it? And it comforts us. But then sometimes, when we hear the truth of Jesus, it, it triggers us. It triggers us of an angry and overbearing authority figure. And we go, that, that's not what I'm looking for. I thought that the church was about love and grace. But in a church, and at our church, it is truth and grace, right? We laugh together, we love each other, we eat together, we we eat together a lot. There's the Risen 15. 
we love each other well here. And I'm grateful and proud of that as, as your pastor. You learned that well. <laughs> but we also value truth here. We do. Right? We value the teachings of Christ as written and recorded by his apostles and disciples. So we teach and we sit under and learn. We're a spiritual family in that way, truth and love. This brings us to the last point now, gospel freedom. Um, now our text tells us that Timothy's mother was a Jewish believer and his father was Greek. It doesn't seem like Timothy's dad was a believer or else Luke would have noted it. And most likely because of that, Timothy wasn't circumcised. This was a big deal because as we learned uh, in the book of Acts, the cultural separation between the Jews and the Gentiles was strong. And last week, uh, we learned that there were some Jewish individuals from the Pharisee party who were teaching that you had to get circumcised in order to be saved. Paul got into a huge argument with them over this. He even went to Jerusalem to settle this matter with all the church leaders. And during this debate in Acts 15, Peter stands up and says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. So the elders and the apostles decide that they would not require circumcision for those who turn to Jesus. Right? That's one chapter ago. But in our text today, Paul gets Timothy circumcised. Right? And then together they deliver this message that you don't need to be circumcised. <laughs> What is going on there? Right? Well, what we are seeing here, friends, uh, is the difference between a matter of sin and a matter of freedom. Okay? Now just follow, with, follow me here. This is very important. Alright? For example, as a Christian, we can say, don't get drunk. Right? That's a sin. God says getting drunk is not the will of God, right? Um, you no longer have control over your mind or your body or your mouth. Uh, lots of harm and bad decisions can come from that. That's why God says drunkenness is sin. But we can't say drinking is sin. Having a beer or a glass of wine is not a sin. We're free. We are free to do that. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Right? He does not stumble others to sin. He and his disciples were constantly accused of eating and drinking with tax collectors, right? So drinking alcoholic beverages is not sin. You are free to do that. But let's say that you know that there may be some recovering alcoholics in your midst. Let's say you know that uh, there may be some who've had abusive and alcoholic family members. Then wisdom could influence your freedom to refuse an alcoholic beverage in their presence. Not because it would be sinful, but out of wisdom, out of not stumbling your brother or sister, you could use your freedom, not for yourself, but to love and serve others. Now, one could easily say, Rich, stop being so legalistic, right? This isn't a big deal. I'm not getting drunk. What does having a beer, uh, what does uh, having a beer have to, anything to do with my relation with Jesus? I'm free in Christ to do this. You are. 
But think about it here with me. Timothy is half Jewish, half Greek Christian. He's been discriminated against and ostracized by probably both, both cultures. Now he finally hears that no one should force upon him any particular cultural marker as a requirement of acceptance. He's thinking, that's amazing. That's how it should be. No one should put any requirements on anyone other than the ones that Jesus has required. Amen. Amen. Like Paul said, there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised and uncircumcised, no barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And Paul tells Timothy, hey, I think you should get circumcised. <laughs> Timothy is like, what? Paul ugh, stops succumbing to the pressure of the Pharisees. Right? You just said circumcised and uncircumcised. And seriously, I'm 40, like, I'm too old. I can't recover from that, dude. <laughs> take me a year. My friend got circumcised. He got an infection. Oh. He had to take a time off work, right? That's what Paul's thinking, right? Just practically speaking. My health insurance won't cover it. I got to pay out of pocket. Stop it, Paul. How do you think Paul responded? Well, in 1 Corinthians, this is probably how he responded in 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free... From all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the Old Testament law, I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, that is the Old Testament law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them its blessings. And Timothy is like, all right, man, you, you know a good doctor. <laughs> here, is the, here is the irony of the gospel, church. The gospel says, nothing you bring, nothing you do, pre-Christian or post-Christian conversion. Nothing earns you Jesus' forgiveness. Nothing makes you more or less deserving. Nothing. 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 You have been forgiven. You have been loved. You have been approved. You have been adopted. You have been gifted. The Holy Spirit you have been freed and saved eternally all by grace. It is untainted, uncorrupted, your works. Don't you dare add anything to the gospel. It's a free gift. But it is free for you because someone has paid the ultimate price. So Paul says, you were bought with the price. So glorify God. Now, what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. Before we came to know Jesus, we were not spiritually free. We were bound by sin, by Satan, by death. No forgiveness, just guilt and shame and condemnation. No hope, no power of the Holy Spirit, no transformation. Just outward appearance, maybe. 
No light, just darkness. No truth, just illusions and delusions. No resurrection, just the grave. Bound. But after coming to know Jesus, you are spiritually free. You receive his love and forgiveness. You have the ability to sincerely love. Uh, not out of manipulative approval, but pure love. You have the power to forgive. You have the power and the humility and grace to confess. You have the ability to love God, not perfectly, but still genuinely, still authentically. There's hope for resurrection now. Death is not the end. It no longer controls you or paralyzes you. Church, that is gospel freedom. But what have you been freed for? I just told you what you've been freed from, but what have you been freed for? Well, in the book of Romans, Paul's, Paul says that if you are a disciple of Christ, you have been set free by the Holy Spirit from being a servant to sin and now a servant of righteousness and love, which is the fruit of your sanctification. Freedom. That's, you have been freed for freedom. Freedom to love. Jesus says what? If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free indeed. When you and I think about freedom, what do we think about? Free time. Freedom from the kids. Freedom from deadlines and pressures. Financial freedom. Freedom to do what you want, say what you want. Freedom from accountability. But friends, what we see in the scriptures, there is a better freedom. A more fulfilling and meaningful freedom. A lasting freedom. And that is the freedom to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful, isn't it? The freedom to love, the freedom to sacrifice, the, re the freedom to serve, the freedom to forgive, the freedom to enjoy God, to enjoy Him, not to be afraid of Him, not to be ashamed in front of Him, but to just enjoy Him because Christ has covered your sin. You are free now to enjoy God. Hmm. Freedom. To become all things to all people that by all means you might save some. All for the sake of the gospel. And do not be daunted by this task because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you and we forget our identity. I forget my identity. I can be bogged down with my own moral righteousness, my own self-righteousness. I can be bogged down with my failures and my weaknesses. I can be bogged down by the spirit of the age, which is competition and pride and approval, condemnation and judgment. But what we see here in the book of Acts, what we see throughout your word, what we see in the spirit of the gospel, is that we are not identified by what we do. We are identified by what has been done for us. But it's so hard. 
we cannot help that somehow to attach our works to some form of approval and righteousness and justification. Our works cannot be purely good works out of joy. Somehow we're always connecting that to our value, to our confidence, to our purpose. But over and over again in the scriptures, we see how you are constantly trying to tear down those walls of self-activity, self-performance, self-securing, self-righteousness and morality building. For we all fall short of the glory of God. And you see all and know all. Help us. Lord, have mercy on us to root us and ground us, not just when we become a Christian, but for the 50th time when we are maturing as a Christian, ground us in the gospel. That no one is above the gospel. No one outgrows the gospel. No one levels up from the gospel. No, even Paul said it himself, I am the worst of sinners because he understood it. And yet, he says, I am working harder than anyone that I know. So help us, oh God, to be grounded in this gospel. That it would humble us, that it would fill us, that it would not, uh, you know, uh, shame us, but it would renew us. And it would soften us again. That we would not be hardened. And out of that, would you build then a kingdom identity as we strive to love you and to serve you, to be used by you? Out of that gospel, would you then create a real spiritual family identity here that not only shows grace but also truth? That will constantly and continually renew us. And we can all say, hey, Jesus is the eldest brother. He sets the agenda for our family. So Father, would you help us? By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you calm down and would you penetrate our hearts again? Every single day, every single week. For we are, as the hymn says, prone to wander. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.